Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm really looking forward to speaking today with Erica Winneray Kelly and hearing more about her career journey. Erica is a breast cancer surgeon and also an advocate based in Auckland. Erica co-founded and is the managing director of both Auckland Breast Centre and Focus Radiotherapy. She's been a consultant and national auditor for the Breast Screening Programme and involved in multiple breast specialist groups within Australasia and the UK. As an advocate, Erica was the founding chair of the advisory board for InZone Girls, is also a Fab 50 leader with Be Accessible, a member of New Zealand Global Women, and a mentor to a number of female students. And Erica has actually travelled a different surgical path than the status quo. She designed and completed the first part-time fellowship position in New Zealand, and also the first part-time subspecialist consultant position to provide some work-life balance. Outside of work, you'll find Erica with her two teenagers, her husband Mark, and her two big Bernese mountain dogs. I can't wait to hear more about her career journey today. Kia ora, Erica, and thank you very much for joining me. Kia ora, thank you for thinking of me. Ah, you're welcome. So you said when we were speaking beforehand that you'd had a chance to listen to a couple of the, the podcasts before, so you probably know what the first question's going to be. <laughs> and that's if you take the time to think that when you were a child or a teenager, what did you want to be or do when you grew up? I always wanted to be a surgeon, actually, right from the age of 10. And it seems a little unusual given that there's, you don't actually have a lot of exposure short of obviously the young doctors back in our day. But I did break quite a few bones. So I was at Palm North Hospital a bit. And I liked the science, I liked the health, but I actually just liked the fixing of things. So when I was 10, I was building an aviary with my dad in the garden. And I told him then that I was going to be a brain surgeon. And really one of the gifts I think that I got from mum and dad was that we were always given the belief that we could achieve um, if we worked hard enough that it wasn't a given, but certainly there were expectations that we would achieve, but also never any doubt that if you worked hard enough that you couldn't. And I think that's quite an important message to give so that when I told dad that his response was, oh, that sounds great. So even in my very dark moments, like with introducing this disruptive radiation that no doubt we'll talk about later, in the back of my head, well, of course I can do it. My dad told me I could. And certainly mum as well. But it was just that one moment by the aviary with dad. And I think we need to be careful with words, how we do talk to people, because as a species, we we focus on negative. It's how we've been such a successful species, because we would have died out long ago if we never recognised risk. But we don't have the same risks nowadays that our predecessors did with in the caves. And we tend to focus on words and things that are told to them. So sometimes I see students come through that come to the operating theatre with me and they've already heard by their parents how hard it is to get into med school. 
you shouldn't minimise how difficult things can be. You know, you say you'll have to work hard, but also I think we need to make sure that we're very positive, actually, very specific in our positives as well. Because I think that's what's just hung over me for my whole life is that mum and dad thought I could do it. And so I will. And I like the way you talk about that as being a gift. And in fact, and it is a mm. wonderful gift, that belief that they instilled in you that you could do anything with some focus and some hard work. Yeah, wonderful. Mm. And then, so if you had that kind of idea, okay, age 10, yes, I want to be a surgeon. And therefore, she went to med school. Tell me then a little bit about the, the first few years of your career. What were some of the highlights and challenges there? It was incredibly hard work. I went straight to Middlemore for my first job as a house surgeon and it was just baptism by fire. Amazingly exciting and most of us didn't have partners at that time. A real camaraderie of being in the trenches and certainly I was very close to some of the colleagues that helped you out and vice versa at the time. It was a great job but it is not to minimise the fact that they were very long hours and uh, we were learning all the time. It was a high-pressure job. And I think their junior doctors are protected a lot more now um, by the hierarchy and their consultants are in hospital a lot. But certainly it was challenging. But it was also exciting because it's something I'd wanted to do all my life. There were other challenges too because um, you have to move for your training which is really important because you've got to have input from lots of different teachers but that can be difficult for relationships as well. Certainly Mark and I did commute for one year, in fact we got married and he dropped me back at the hospital in Palms North and he drove on to Wellington so we did have a year of commuting which can be difficult as well. Medicine and surgery are definitely improving. Over 50% of people coming into medicine are women now, but surgery, despite more women being in it, it is still the most masculine corner of a male-dominated profession. And so I did encounter some undesirable behaviours along the way. But at the same time, I had the most amazing male mentors too, two of whom I count with getting me through. So yeah, so I've, it's sort of sort of a mixed thing. And I'm just so happy to see that the Royal College of Surgeons is really taking on that challenge for equality and good behaviour and safety in teams. I think uh, we're seeing a real change as we are with the Me Too movement worldwide. Mm. And it's interesting you talk about surgery, absolutely new medicine, seeing that wonderful equality and balance in terms of gender, but that surgery is still not there yet. What do you think it might take to have the world of surgery be more gender balanced? I think it's really all about balancing expectations around life choices as well. It's 14 years to be a surgeon so I started medical school at 18 and was a surgeon at 32. So I didn't stop. I went straight through. And that's also the time when important relationships are taking place. But during those final four or five years of training, you're going to be expected to move to four different cities. So you can see that already it's more difficult unless you have your male partner prepared to do the long distance or prepared to move their job with you, which is more so women have moved for their male counterparts. So different balances like that. You've got children to factor into it. You know, we like to think we're all fertile at 32, but it really does drop off in our late 20s. So how are we going to have children? So it's driving a balance around that, but actually men of the younger generations want that too. So I think everyone's a lot more open-minded 
about that. And I think there have also got to be good female role models just stepping back from surgery just in terms of those, you know, director jobs, executive roles, lawyers, the women that have got through, I think, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, it was a dog-eat-dog world and they they were not necessarily out to drag other women along with them. And I'm not criticising them for that. It was just simple the way of how you got through. But when I was on the training scheme, there was usually one girl out of 10 to 12, one female, sorry, out of 10 to 12 each year on the general surgical training scheme. So we were a minority. And at that time, I don't think we were good enough at looking out for each other as well. I think that it was just so competitive. And I like to think nowadays we've got people who are turning round on the ladder and helping other women up behind them. Uh, And I think that's taking us a long time to realise not to be threatened by other people, but it's been a highly competitive environment. It's like training to be a surgeon is like being an elite athlete, but then being told to be a team player at the end of it. (laughs) And so it's, yeah, so I think it's a mix of a whole lot of things around childcare support, maternity and paternity leave, And yeah, better ways to put our eggs on ice um, for when we want our children as well. Yes, really interesting to hear because it's not just one thing. Mm. And there's not some kind of silver bullet that is going to turn it around. There is that piece around role models and community support, bringing people up, but also some of the structures, as you say, around the modern world, which is is a world of dual careers, mostly. So Mm. how do you accommodate the other partner and, and support that at the same time as enabling that fantastic training and learning around the world from some fantastic experts. Yeah, fantastic. What was it then about breast cancer surgery that really interested you? I'm a general surgeon by training, actually. So breast cancer is just part of the specialty. And I always loved breast, but the decision to go into it solely was ended up being a lot bigger than that. And it was a little bit more a decision around weighing up how I could be a mum as well. During the final years of training, the surprise for me was that I became incredibly clucky at that point and did want children, having gone through my earlier training, figuring that I didn't think I wanted children, but I definitely did and my husband did. And then it was the question of how am I going to do that? We didn't have many female role models ahead of me, but one particular one, she was an amazing clinician, amazing thinker really compassionate, beautiful surgical hands to watch. And she was reasonably unsupported as a junior consultant with a young family and she ended up leaving surgery and didn't return. And I looked at her and thought, if I can't, if she can't do that, then I'm not going to be able to either because I did want to be, I didn't want to work 60 hours a week and not really see the children. So As I was coming towards the end of my training, I really loved endocrine surgery and really loved breast. And I thought they're both subjects, they're both areas at least that can be elective. So not that I'm operating on them at two in the morning or coming in with an emergency so that there would be an ability to control clinics and control surgery around that. And so I worked with my consultant and also a plastic surgeon to create a part-time fellowship and breast plastics. And that was the first time that had been done in Australasia, actually, because it's an Australasian college. But they accepted my proposal. And so I was able to have Olivia and then spread my part-time over two years. 
And from that, I was still actually doing the acute roster at that time, but it was also hard. You get really tired. You've got a young baby and you don't want to be in the abdomen at two in the morning fixing something. I decided at that point that the only way to do it when I had my second child was to actually come off the on-call roster. Now, there are huge numbers of discussions and it's a very circular argument. I can see all sides of the fence here. Well, I'm on the acute roster. You should have to be too. And just because you're a woman, you shouldn't be off and I've got children too, et cetera, except that wasn't, my point was that this is what I decided I could offer the system if the system wanted it, then that was all I could offer. And so I ended up getting a part-time job in the public system as a contractor doing just breast cancer and uh, breast cancer clinics and surgery. And that was the first time that had happened. And it actually was associated with a huge amount of conflict. It totally divided the department. I didn't have my in a desk or office in the consultant department. I didn't have my name on the consultant list. I wasn't given a registrar or house surgeon, which all consultants are given that as their support team. And I really believe in the public system. And at that time, I still thought, no, I'm going to keep doing it. But after about four years, it became um, untenable. And it was dividing the department because I was the only one off the on-call roster. And so I ended up resigning. At that time, I've always had my private practice, Auckland Breast Centre in the background. And it was a really hard thing to go through because I believed in the public system. I still believe in the public system. But at the time, and that was over 10 years ago now, it was 16 years ago when I um, first started that process, it's that new change, isn't it? It's that paradigm shift in how we deliver service from departments and from consultants and what we expect people to do. And it was just too big a call. Having said that, each subsequent woman who has come on, other consultant, female consultants now have been able to negotiate lesser consultant um, obligations. And in fact, so have a lot of the men. So it's that kind of thing. You're the first one to chip away at it. You're not normally the often the one who then gets to reap the rewards. But I think the system behind me is, yeah. And, and hearing that story, as you say, somebody has to be the pioneer, but usually that's a pretty yeah. tough road to follow. You know, how did you cope personally during that time? Oh, it was really hard. And my husband's amazing. Mark is a lawyer, But during this time, we'd had Olivia and I was pregnant with James. He was at one of the law firms working extremely hard, the usual six days a week. Bedtime was eight in the evening for Liv so that he could see her. And I said, I just don't think we should keep doing this for number two either. And so he made the move out to be a barrister, which was amazing because it meant that if I was stuck in theatre or I was held up in any way, Mark could actually by not being in a big firm and having his own practice was able to actually help out in that regard. So I think a lot of my success is actually down to quite a team effort in that regard. So Mark's been a huge support and I've had a close couple of colleagues who were huge support because interestingly, back then, it was 16 years ago, it's actually other women that gave me a harder time (laughs) than some of the men. And I suppose that's because you're challenging, you're choosing a different path and I think we have to be mindful that not everyone takes the same path. And just because other people take a different path, that's not an inherent criticism of the path that you've taken. I actually don't believe that we can have it all, whatever that means, 
all at once. I think you can have it all and do it all at different times, but you're going to have to compromise. Something will have to give and you will work out your own recipe for that. Your family will work it out and you'll decide. So I really miss operating in the abdomen actually and doing those acutes, but I made a choice and I have all this great time with the children my children will leave home to university in about three years' time and I know I've actually got one more career left in me. I don't know what that is yet, but I've still got another 20 years to do that and that's when I'll be able to go back for that. So I think it's also just about understanding that we don't have to have it or do it all at once and that we've got a long time to go on this journey. We don't have to get to an end point anytime soon. So yeah, I count my um, husband and a few close colleagues as really getting me through that because at that time I still really worried what people thought of me. Mm. I've reached this beautiful age of 48. I wish I knew this now. I'm caring less about what people think of me. I think that tends to happen for most people as they get older, um, which you say probably a, a bit more of a helpful way to, to go through life. And I liked also that you talked through, you know, careers are sort of 40 plus years and what works and the choices that you make at a certain point in time, actually in the future, you might make different choices and have different priorities and, and those will be different for, for everybody. Yeah. Mm. What do you really love then about your current work? I think one of the big things I love actually is the patients. Women are quite remarkable and they all spread all age groups. You know, I've treated breast cancer from 21 years of age all the way up to 99. So I have these, this amazing range of women and they're just so strong and they're capable. And because it's breast cancer and because I um, look after these patients for five to 10 years, it's quite an intimate relationship and they put a lot of um, faith in you. Yeah, I really enjoy that. I'm a really curious person, so I do enjoy meeting lots of people in that regard. And in that one-on-one setting, you just find and learn about lots of different things in the world. In breast cancer, we are very team-focused, so I work very closely with other specialties and also my surgical team. So I really enjoy that collaboration as well. And it's so satisfying taking out cancer. Yes. Well, yes. Yes. And I can imagine, and as you say, you do really go with somebody on that journey and and Mm. get to know them, their lives, their sort of hopes and dreams, probably quite quite well along the way. That's right. Yeah. You've talked already about uh, a couple of the more challenging times in your career. And you mentioned when we first spoke, I think, about a new type of radiation therapy that, that had been perhaps a bit of a challenging time more recently. Absolutely. So it is a great thing to be naive, I think, because if you're not naive, <laughs> you probably wouldn't try and do, uh, try and make such big paradigm shifts to treatment guidelines. But there is a treatment that you can deliver a single dose of radiation into the tumor bed once you've taken the cancer out in surgery, and that in about a third of cancers can replace the 15 to 25 daily doses of radiation. So it was quite a paradigm shift in the delivery. And I thought everyone would be excited by that. But there are lots of people, businesses, egos, et cetera, that are always invested in the status quo and medicine is not immune to that. We introduced it, gosh, seven years ago now and actually decommissioned it a year ago because 
we could no longer continue supporting it. The major insurance business would not cover their patients, so we could no longer cover supporting them to get cover. All the other insurance companies did cover it. And I just couldn't get it over the line with the public health system. It's rather fortuitous that you're asking me about this today because on Friday, the long-term data was published in the British Medical Journal supporting the use of this treatment as safe and effective, but I could not believe the amount of personal and professional criticism that I received as a result of this. Uh, There was a certain sadness and ended up when I did decommission it because we couldn't financially continue it. But at the same time, I had done so much in so many different places, networking with so many different groups that hand on heart, I'd done everything I could to do it. So I think Erica of 10 or 15 years ago would have seen that as a fail, but Erica now could see I did my best, didn't get what I wanted to, but I tried my best so can walk away um, with a bit of dignity. Now that this paper's come through, I'm thinking, oh man, I'm going to have to get a lot of energy to get that up and running again. But that was quite interesting. And what helps you in those situations, again, is just relying on a close network of people to back you. It also really strengthened my resolve that you actually need to stand up. And I haven't intended to be a difficult person along the way. Um, I'm quite anti-conflict. I'm a good girl. I like to follow rules and things, but I don't like bad behavior. I call out discrimination and stuff. So it's just that end up along the way where I've wanted to do different things, be part-time or call bad behavior with a consultant or something you feel like you can't walk away from it as well. And I think I can't believe that I have stood up at international meetings and challenged the consultants on the stage over this intraoperative radiation. And I would never have done that years ago. And so I think it's been an incredible period of growth for me as well. And there are times when I thought, God, I wish I'd walked away from that and never done it. But I look back now and think, oh man, I wouldn't have met all these people. I wouldn't have been in all these different systems like at the in Parliament with the House Select Committee, meeting the Māori King's Consort at Taranga Waiwai Marae, all these different things, New Zealand Global Women, that have come about as a result of being put under pressure. It's that classic thing, isn't it? You grow the most when you get the most pressure put on you. So... I'm grateful for the opportunity, however harrowing. I can say that now that it's about a year since I decommissioned it. So it's been a work in progress. Yes, I think hindsight every, it gives you a bit of perspective, doesn't it? As you say, some of those hardest times are often those points of greatest learning. But at the time, it doesn't always feel like that when you're in the midst of it. So sometimes it's only afterwards where you can reflect and say, gosh, look at everything, actually, even if it hasn't worked out the way that I'd hoped, look at everything that I've taken from that experience. Mm. One of the things I did actually was the Global Women, New Zealand Global Women, and that is an amazing network of people who are trying just to reach out and feed ideas. And, you know, I did a short talk introduction when I joined them. And by the time I'd left the three-day hui, I had all these different ideas. Have you tried this? How about talking to this person? Just this wealth of ideas. And I think women on the whole have not been as good as men at networking. We haven't had that golfing, that, you know, the sort of go for drink, the long lunches. I think we haven't done that. But I think there is a lot to be said for just talking 
to people taking up all those coffees, even if you're not really sure what the purpose of the coffee is about. I think networking, that, that certainly gave me a huge amount of strength. There were some very senior women at Global Women like um, Margaret Sparrow and Marilyn Waring who put their hand on your shoulder and told you just their stories that they'd, they'd gone through, keep going. And it was quite, that was amazing, yeah. And as you say, that kind of that community of support, helping each other and, and them almost having, just as your dad did, having that belief in you that mm. you could keep going is, yeah, again, another wonderful gift. And I think it's a really interesting one about how as women do we continue to support each other and, and as you said earlier on, how to, to bring other women through as well. You've talked about some of the tough times. What about what are some of your proudest moments in your career? Oh, yeah. <laughs> one of... One of the funniest, my proudest moment was when I first saw my name written down as the surgeon of a procedure. And I was a fourth year medical student with my dear mentor, Professor Morton, and he let me excise a mole off someone's back. And uh, that was my first bit of surgery ever. And he wrote the operation note and he had surgeon and had my name beside it. And I think that was one of my proudest um, moments, one of the smallest operations I've done, but what I'm most proud of. Certainly, oh, crossing the stage to become a surgeon, I was visibly pregnant with James. This was in Perth for the convocation ceremony. My daughter and my parents and husband were the audience, and Olivia was 15 months, and she shouted out, Papa! Because my dad was standing up um, on the side crying as he saw me go across the stage. So that was a, a nice um, circle Uh, back to when I told him I'd do it. Opening my own clinic has been an absolute highlight. We love Auckland Breast Centre here. We've got a wonderful team. We deliver an amazing service, so that's a real pleasure. And actually bringing in Intrabeam, doing those first cases, delivering treatment another way, challenging the system has been, yeah, there's some great career moments. Some wonderful moments. Mm. And it strikes me you've talked about some of the ways that, you know, you engineered your work to give you a bit more balance and time, particularly with the family, but still with all the, the variety of work that you do and the still kids, you've got full life outside. How do you find, how do you personally um, find balance between work and, and your life outside? Certainly very busy. It's less busy now in some ways because they're 15 and 17, not in you spend as much time with them, but you don't have quite as much of that sort of physically or logistic managing of two. They're very self-sufficient, but you still need a lot of time with them. I've been quite protective over my time. And as the usual woman would um, say, totally let myself go along the way. So haven't exercised enough put everyone else first. So now that this old, I'm finally starting to get fit. But we've also been really big on little rituals in the family. And I think we all like to belong to something and you like to belong to a set of memories. And we've always done Friday night, movie night. And that was right back to when they were sort of three and four and started out with a 5.30 who bears Halloween probably and dad's homemade pizza and so every Friday night we've had that and in fact we still have it now so just that those little things I think those rituals really pin you down to belonging to something we I put random notes in their lunchbox I 
I asked my team to protect me. So even as recently as two years ago, my business cards got changed and had my mobile and personal email taking off it, taken off it because I was just getting too much contact. So my team filter everything first through to me. And actually, I have to say my friend group has got smaller, but kind of higher quality, if you like. I think there can be, especially with social media, I'm not on social media now. I came off it because I didn't think it was good for me. But that idea that everyone's always doing something and you needing to be part of that. So you end up diluting, I think, a lot of good friendships because you need to keep up with things. So I have a smaller group of friends probably now than I used to. And I think that they've helped me too. Yeah, we have a lot of humor in our house too. So that helps. Mark and my husband, I married the funny guy and James, my son is as well. So between the two of um, two of those two, it keeps the household pretty happy. Yeah. Mm, and I can imagine particularly when you are going through those tough times from a work perspective, having that ability to come home and have those kind of, she said, those rituals in place where you all come together and feel like you belong, but also that kind of perspective of we can laugh about something totally different and that's okay. It just mm. gives you that release. Yeah. Wonderful. The other thing I did along the way was to highlight that I had a job outside of the children too. And so they have, ever since they were born, come to my Saturday morning ward rounds. And obviously they stopped when they started realising what they were doing, uh, what I was actually doing. But so they have a really good empathy and they have a good understanding. They've seen me cry on the phone, breaking bad news to a patient. So I think that's also really good because they have empathy, but they see that I'm, they're not the only part of my world. And I think um, that's good for them too and helps them with their independence as well. Mm, I think it absolutely does. And I think it's when you look at the models of parenting that perhaps we grew up with and then how that flows Mm. through to your own children. Yes, I think it is probably healthy for kids to see that both parents maybe have to go out to work and and how do they manage Mm. that, but at the same time still be a loving parent within that too. Mm. You talked briefly about thinking about that next stage of your career and you've still got another career in you yet. Where do you see your career heading in the future? I'm not quite sure yet, so I am going to have to take up a lot of coffees with people. What I do know is that I will run out of puff for the intensity of dealing only with cancer on that one-on-one setting. And I'm wondering if my next step is more macro, so giving to more people rather than one-on-one. Initially, my ambition was to be a surgeon was, you know, it was that kind of a bit more selfish. There's something I wanted to achieve. And it wasn't so much, you wanted to fix people. My brother said, if I was a surgeon, I could have a Lamborghini. I don't have a Lamborghini. (laughs) So that didn't work out. But I think with time, actually, I've come to understand that the most satisfying part of my job is the giving back. And you can see now in our world growing up in Palmerston North with two parents who were scientists who were white, I had every privilege uh, given to me and I could probably give something back to someone every day and till I die and not quite have repaid that privilege. So my next one will be in some form of giving back, but I just don't know what that is yet. Mm. I look forward to seeing what it might be. Yeah, interesting. And last question then, Erica, what career advice would you have for other women? I think it's a really good idea if you try to be a bit more flexible in your ambition. 
I think if you just consider that success is a straight line, you'll probably miss all of the interesting detours along the way. So always take up that coffee. Be respectful of everyone. Try things. Don't be afraid of failure. Obviously, you're going to need to be sensible about risk, but don't be afraid of value of failure. And just decide what your personal set of values are and live with that. Always be curious. I think it's really good if you can work out that people are truly not thinking about you as much as you think they are. When you do something wrong, I mean, I look at the papers now, literally within two days, the you know political saga of the day has gone and that person lives another day. So I think you've just got to stop worrying that what's happening to you is such big news for other people because I think we can spend a bit too much time worrying about that. If you don't respect someone, then probably don't listen to what they say about you either as well, actually, because you will be cut down. I had my head chopped off so many times with intrabeam, but eventually your head grows back and you carry on. Always have a duty to help other people. I think that's quite key. I think we're so, you know, there are so many privileged people in New Zealand and I don't mean money. And I think we just have a duty to help people along the way. My kids always tease me because I have this mantra at home. They tease me because I will have a conversation with absolutely everyone at the service station, putting a trolley away at the supermarket. I always say never miss a chance to have a conversation. So it's all about community. I think you need to have a meaningful connection and I think you just must always be curious. Wonderful advice. Thank you, Erica. And thank you so much for sharing your career journey today and particularly what I personally found really useful and fascinating was hearing some of those challenges and how you managed your way through those and what you'd learned out the other side. So thank you in particular for sharing those. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for your time. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon. Thank you.